Well, we are in a series through the Sermon on the Mount, and I encourage you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 as we have been working our way through this section of Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. This morning we'll be looking at verses 38 through 42 of Matthew 5, and I'm going to read those out loud. You can follow along in your copy of the Bible. Matthew chapter 5, starting to read in verse 38. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. In these three chapters in the book of Matthew, chapters 5, 6, and 7, Jesus is giving us pictures of righteousness. Pictures of what it looks like to be right with God. Jesus said in chapter 5, verse 17, I haven't come to abolish the law, I've actually come to fulfill it. And by that, Jesus was saying that the entire Old Testament... The law and the prophets point to him. And if they point to him, he has the authority, he has the right to tell us the true direction of the Old Testament law. You see, what's been happening is the religious leaders of the day have been misunderstanding the law. They think that they're treating the law almost like a checklist And they look at the externals of the Old Testament law and say, I haven't done this, I haven't done this, I haven't done this. I'm great with God. In fact, some of their checklist is man-made. Some of their checklist is built on their additions to the law and their interpretations of the law. So they, in a sense, develop the list by which they judge themselves. Well, Jesus comes in this sermon and shows with six examples from chapter 5, verse 21, down through verse 48. Six examples of how maybe these religious leaders aren't quite as right with God as they think they are. He starts out in chapter 5, verses 21 through 26, pointing out, based on the sixth commandment, you shall not commit murder, that, you know what, you're guilty of murder even if you are holding ill will toward a brother or a sister, ill will toward a fellow disciple. He goes on in chapter 5, verses 27 through 30, talking about the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. And the religious leaders are saying, I haven't committed an act of adultery, I'm good with God. But Jesus says, even if you look at a member of the opposite sex with a heart of lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. He goes on in chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, talking about the religious leaders' understanding of divorce and remarriage and how Israelites in this day were just casting aside their spouses for a a multitude of reasons. And Jesus, and thinking they're okay with God. And Jesus says, no, 
the Lord intended marriage to be for life. That's, that's his heart. Last week, Jesus talked about truth in chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. And the religious leaders of the day were wordsmithing and using elaborate formulas to actually knowingly mislead people, but think they're still okay with God in their deception. And Jesus says, no, you need to speak truth all the time. Well, today we come to his fifth example of the leaders of the day misunderstanding the law. And we find it here in verses 38 through 42. In a very familiar section. The section that talks about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I remember old episodes of TV westerns where there'd be some old codgerly looking guy wearing a wolf pelt and he'd come and said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And it was on television, these verses. And, and Jesus here is going to say, we need to turn the other cheek. Well, how, how familiar are we with that? But while these verses are really familiar, and pretty easy to understand, we're going to find that applying them is the hard part. And here Jesus is going to follow the common formula that he's used in the previous four examples. You have heard it said, but I say to you. And what he's going to say is this. You think it's okay to seek revenge when somebody hurts you or takes advantage of you. You think it's okay. You feel justified in standing up for your rights. But I'm here to say that if you're right with God, you don't have to stand up for your rights. If you're right with God, you don't have to get even. In fact, it's actually an opportunity when somebody hurts you to exercise grace. A couple summers ago, my middle son went to an outside concert at Red Rocks outside of Denver to one of his favorite bands, the Avett Brothers. And my middle son really likes the Avett Brothers. I think maybe my youngest son was along on that trip too, and the guys stood in line forever because the tickets were just general admission. So if you wanted a decent seat, you need to get there early. So they got there really early, stood in line forever, but got great seats. Before the Avett brothers came on, a lightning storm, a thunderstorm came through, and they cleared the whole venue because it was lightning. Everybody had to go to their cars and wait for the storm to pass. And when it was time to go back in, people just rushed in. And my son, who had a great seat because he stood in line forever and ever, ended up with no seat at all. And he was telling me about this, and I was just mad as I heard the whole thing. Well, that's not fair. That's not right. Some schmuck who just... Came in at the last second, didn't even have a seat, didn't even care enough to get there early. He gets your seat, and then you had to stand through the whole thing. 
justice in that. You can tell I'm still a little worked up about it. Oh, injustice. And here Jesus is saying, injustice is going to happen. And if you want people to see me, Jesus, in you, if you want people to know that you're right with God, we don't have to get back. We don't have to get even. We don't even have to claim our rights. And so Jesus begins in verse 38 and the first half of verse 39, talking about people who are living right with him, who are in right relationship with him. And he says, if a person's living in right relationship with him, they're truly his disciple, they're walking with him, that person doesn't need to retaliate. You are hurt, we don't have to retaliate. You suffer a wrong, we don't have to retaliate. We can actually give up our rights. Notice with me verse 38. You've heard that it was said... An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's actually quoted, Jesus quotes here, could be from three different passages of the Old Testament. That phrase occurs in Exodus chapter 21 verse 24, Leviticus chapter 24 verse 20, and Deuteronomy chapter 19 verse 21. All three of those passages. And the intent of that Old Testament law or regulation was actually to protect the offender. It was to keep people from trying to execute revenge that was greater than the crime. So that regulation was there to, in a sense, prevent people from getting back at someone worse than what was originally done to them. We're going to look in a few minutes. There's actually Old Testament passages that say we shouldn't get back at all. That, that when a person's wrong, we can just trust in our right judge to deal with the situation. So here Jesus quotes this Old Testament passage, which the religious leaders of the day were using in their minds to justify getting back at somebody. It's in the Old Testament. I can get back at this person because they hurt me. Jesus says, well, here's what I say to you. Verse 39. Do not resist an evil person. What? That's counterintuitive. That's counterculture. You mean I'm just supposed to, I'm not supposed to stand up for my rights? I'm supposed to yield myself? And Jesus is going to give us some more examples of this and what he means by this in the second half of verse 39 down through verse 42. But that's what he's saying. When I suffer a wrong, when you suffer a wrong, Jesus says, for his disciples, we don't have to get even. We don't, we don't have to try to get back at that person. We, we don't even have to claim I have rights. About three weeks ago, 
my grandpa's youngest brother passed away. We knew him as Uncle Ob. His real name was Orville, but who wants to go through life being, Orville, it's time for supper. Ob just sounds cool. So that was his name, Uncle Ob. I actually went and visited Uncle Ob. He, he did not know Jesus, but I would have liked to hang out with him. He lived in Buffalo, Wyoming. He used to take hunters up into the mountains and uh, little bighorns and elk hunt. He guided elk hunts. He had a little gun shop in Buffalo. He was just, I just liked him. I actually took a trip in college just to spend a little time with Uncle Obe. Passed away. Last of, I think, 15 children. My grandpa had a sister whose name was Enid. Never met Enid. And whenever Enid's name was mentioned, it was always had this little tinge of disdain, like Enid. I never knew why. You know, you grow up, sometimes you just don't ask why Enid was hardly ever talked about. But when she was talked about, it was just like tense, like, and then there's Enid. So one day I got up my courage and said, hey, by the way, what's the deal with Enid? Why have I never met Enid? Why hasn't she ever come to a family gathering? Why, when you guys ever talk about her, when you do talk about her, it's always Enid. Well, it came out that Enid, when it came time to settle the estate for my great-grandparents, tried to get extra stuff. She tried to get an advantage in settling the estate. Now... If you're my age or older, you're thinking, been there, done that. I know exactly what you're talking about. Because pretty much a universal truth is when an estate is settled, someone's going to be ticked off. There's always someone trying to get an upper hand. Not always, but a lot. My father died in 1999. He had inherited uh, 80 acres of my grandpa's farm and he wanted my brother and me to have that 80 acres. The day of the funeral, we, my, we had my dad's funeral morning, we went to the graveside, came back to the, the farm in central Iowa where um, they were living at the time. So the day of the funeral comes... And uh, this relative comes up the lane and says, your dad told me years ago that he would sell me back 20 acres of that ground and I want it. And he also told me that I could buy it back at the price that he paid for it 20 years ago. Well, I had just buried my dad. And I just couldn't really dialogue about it right then. And uh, what started happening was he started calling my mom. Every morning, 5.30 calling, 5.30 calling, 5.30 calling. And finally, my mom said, you know what? Let's just sell him the 80 acres. And let's, let's sell it to him below market price. And I'm thinking, are you kidding me? Dad wanted me to have that and Greg to have that. And, and you're just gonna, you're just gonna sell it to him? And my mom says, well, we don't really know where he's at with the Lord and, It's just not worth the family strife. Let's just sell it to him. And we did. And I have to say, to this day, my mom 
was living out Matthew 5, 38 through 42 better than the preacher was. Now, if you've been in that situation, everybody has to deal with these things between them and the Lord and how to apply these verses. And maybe for you, if you've been in that exact situation, maybe you took a different course. I'm not saying that, not trying to talk about that. I'm just trying to say that for my mom, when she came to this situation, that's how she applied these verses. And she said, you know what? Let's just let go of it. You know, we're going to find that these verses are pretty easy to read, pretty easy to understand. The tough part is applying them. And that's where it gets difficult. So Jesus gives us some examples here of how to apply these verses, but we know for sure what Jesus, the overall spirit of what Jesus is saying is, as his follower, I don't have to retaliate. You don't have to retaliate. As his follower, I can actually yield my rights. I don't have to have it made right. It doesn't have to be fair. In fact, I can actually turn it into an opportunity to be gracious. And that's kind of what Jesus is showing us in the second half of verses 39 through 42 as he gives us four examples of responding to a wrong suffered. And he shows us examples of grace and actually providing for people in these four examples. First of all, we see the first example in the second half of verse 39. It says, whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Now, that's counterintuitive, right? So somebody slaps you up on the other, on the side of the face and you go like this and say, okay, well, go ahead and take this side too. And probably there was more involved here than just physical pain. In the ancient Near Eastern culture, most likely that would have been considered a real offensive act, like, you know, uh, dishonor, an act of dishonor. Like, how could you treat me in such a way? And Jesus says, you've suffered a wrong. You don't have to take revenge. You don't have to seek restitution. Things don't have to be made right. You can actually be gracious in giving. Go ahead and, and let them do the other side. He goes on in verse 40 and says, If any wants to sue you and take your shirt. Now this seems strange to us, doesn't it? You're actually going to sue me for my Fruit of the Loom t-shirt? But that's kind of what's going on, except this inner piece of garment would have been a body-length piece of garment. It would have covered your, your whole body, but it would have been the clothing that was next to your skin. And so Jesus says, somebody wants to take your undergarment, your, the, the garment that's closest to your skin, offer them your coat too, your cloak. Now this is intriguing. Because in the Old Testament, there's actually regulation that says no one can take your cloak. There's actually a law that says you cannot keep someone's coat, their cloak. 
For example, uh, it's both in Deuteronomy 24.13 and Exodus 22.26. I'm going to read Exodus 22.26. And Exodus 22.26 says this. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, you are to return it to him before the sun sets. So, it, like your, 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 your cloak, it's your right. In fact, that verse goes on to say, how's this guy gonna cover himself up at night and stay warm if he doesn't have his cloak? It's like everyone's right to have an outer garment. It's everyone's right to have a cloak. And here Jesus says, go ahead and yield your right. If they really want it so bad that they're willing to sue you for your undergarment, go ahead and give them your cloak too. Even though you have a right, even though it's prescribed in the Old Testament. Verse 40 goes on to talk about something that was happening in Jesus' day. In Palestine, where Jesus lived, that was under Roman rule. And there's actually writing outside of the Bible that talks about a Roman law that enabled a Roman soldier to come alongside of someone who lived in that community and say, you've got to carry my bags, and the person had to do it. You know how much that would tick you and me off? Some foreigner comes up to you and says, uh, by the way, get my bags. Now there was a rule, they could only, they only had to take them a Roman mile or a thousand paces. One mile. Jesus says, some Roman soldier just told you to carry his baggage and you feel humiliated and you carry him one mile? Offer to carry him another mile. You see, Jesus is saying, as his follower, those who are walking with him, those who are right with God, we don't have to retaliate. We don't even have to claim our rights. In fact, we can turn it into an opportunity for grace. Finally, in verse 42, he says, somebody wants you to borrow money? Go ahead, loan them the money. Now, there's Old Testament prescription for that. For example, in Proverbs 11:15, it warns against co-signing for a loan to a stranger. You might lose your money, but here Jesus says, go ahead and make the loan. We know from Exodus chapter 22, verse 25, that a Hebrew was not supposed to charge another Hebrew interest. But here, Jesus says, give to him who asks of you. Don't turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Now, here's the issue. These are pretty easy verses to understand, right? How do we apply them? Years ago, we had an intern here in the summer, a student ministries intern. Don't even remember his name. But this guy was very unique. He would go to someone in our church family, and he would say to them, you know, I'd like to get to know you better. And could we have a meal together? And then the people would say, sure, that'd be great. What night do you want me to come over? And then he would go so far and say, and I would like you to make this. He would actually prescribe what the people were supposed to make for his meal. He came to me in my office one day and said, "Um, Steve, I need your car. And I said, what do you mean you need your car? I need to borrow your car. I said, well, you've got a car. He said, well, yeah, but yours is nicer. (laughs) What am I supposed to do? Good thing I wasn't studying Matthew 5 right then. 
You know, what do we do in a situation like that? Does, is Matthew 5, does that, is that saying that we just, whoever comes up and says, give me your car, I give him my car. If, if somebody comes up and starts punching me in the stomach, I say, hey, you missed a spot. What is, what is, what is Jesus wanting from you and from me here in these verses? Now, one of the first things we do when we come to, when we come to verses like this, our first reaction is to qualify what Jesus says. Almost to explain away what Jesus says. And quite frankly, there does need to be some qualifying here. For example, the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 10 told the church in Thessalonica, if there's somebody lazy in your church, not willing to work, Don't let him eat. So I don't think Paul is going against what Jesus is saying here. Paul's saying, don't, it's not love to enable somebody toward laziness. So there is a qualification there. If someone continually is coming and saying, give me, give me, give me, but they're not willing to actually work, then maybe the act of love is not to continue to give to that person. Or the Apostle Paul, remember in Acts chapter 16, was getting beat up. And instead of just continuing to get beat up, he said, Hey, by the way, why are you guys doing this to me? In verse 37, I'm a Roman citizen. So he did claim his rights as a Roman citizen. I think what Jesus is, the point that Jesus is trying to drive home to us is, as his follower... I don't have to get even. As his follower, I don't even have to claim my rights. And sometimes when we find ourselves in a position where we are being wronged, we need to come to the Lord and just and ask him and say, what would you have for me to do in this situation right now? And maybe what we're supposed to do is not Try to protect ourselves. There's an interesting verse, an encouraging verse in 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 19. I'm going to read it. 1 Peter 4 19. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Great verse. You're suffering or I'm suffering. We can come to him and he and ask him for guidance so that we can respond in a Christ-like way and he will help us. Ultimately, each of us have to come to a point where we figure out in a particular situation how verses 38 through 42 apply to us. But one thing's for sure. We can't just explain these away. Jesus doesn't have these verses here just for effect. Hey, he's trying to drive home a truth, a reality, that in Christ, I can entrust my future to my God. I don't have to protect my interests. I don't have to maneuver. I don't have to get back at somebody. I don't have to seek revenge. I don't even have to claim my rights when I'm in Christ. You know, sometimes I think God puts us in situations where we suffer so we can actually be a testimony for Him. 
And my, the first time when I became a pastor at age 26 years old, it seems like a long time ago, in our first pastorate, we went through some hard times. And it was amazing, eight years, nine years, ten years after we had left and were here, we would still get letters from people and, and, and talking about how they had done something that was hurtful and how they appreciated the fact of our response. And they would write and say, you know what, we, we're sorry that we did that. You know, sometimes God may have you in a situation where it doesn't make sense. And maybe what he's wanting is for you to be a testimony of what Jesus looks like in that situation. That's what the Sermon on the Mount's about. And here Jesus, in a very simple way, is calling us to a wrong suffered with, to respond to a wrong suffered with grace and not getting even. Father, we thank you for these verses and the encouragement that they bring us that you are a big God and that you are the one who protects your people. You are the one to whom we need to come. You are the one who protects our rights. Help us to respond in a Christ-like way even when we suffer a wrong. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.